Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to our panel on uh, navigating the treacherous fintech M&A uh, space. Uh, as Adam said, my name is Dario DiMartino. I'm a US-based uh, M&A partner, and I'm one of the co-heads of our global fintech and blockchain practice. For those of you who don't know us, we're a law firm. Uh, we've got about 500 people in the US, but globally we have 5,000 uh, people, and so we can do M&A transactions seamlessly across jurisdictions, and we cover virtually 99% of the world's GDP. Um, with that, I'm very excited to be introducing and speaking with today's uh, panelists. To my right, Emily Mann, who's an investor at Redpoint Ventures. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. And Christina Rust, who's head of uh, strategic investment initiatives at uh, Truist uh, Ventures, and also one of the head of uh, Empire Angels. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. Um, so before we get started, I always like to know a little bit about the audience um, so that we can sort of tailor our remarks uh, accordingly. So just by raise of hands, uh, who spends 100% of their time in, in M&A? Judging by the number of people in this room, I'm thinking, that <laughs> is, is there M&A happening right now? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> um, all right, who's uh, on the business side of things versus legal side of things? Let's do business first. All right, most on the business side. So I will withhold my legal and regulatory remarks <laughs> unless you guys have questions. I'd love uh, to hear those, yeah. I'd be very curious. Happy to do that. Um, but with that, uh, why don't we start with, you know, sharing a little bit more about yourselves with the audience. Emily, why don't you go first? Absolutely, so I'll start with myself as well as Redpoint. So Redpoint is a Bay Area venture firm. We've been around since the late 90s or so uh, and investing across a bunch of different areas of which FinTech is one. Uh, that's where I spend the vast majority of my time. Um, and we've backed companies including Stripe, Nubank, uh, Ramp, as well as a couple of insure techs like Next Insurance and Vouch. Um, and so, yeah, I'll turn it over maybe to, to Christina as well. Sure. Um, Tourist Ventures is a stage agnostic fund backed by uh, Tourist Financial, the uh, sixth or seventh largest bank in the U.S., depending on, on the day. Um, but we are a strategic investor, so we are looking to deepen and broaden partnerships with companies that, that we make investments in. Um, we also invest to learn, so teams, products, markets, we just want to stay close to and, and, and find ways to use our platform to help them to build. And then also investing for social impact. Tourist is a purpose-driven bank to inspire and build better lives and communities, so um, we really try to find opportunities to um, further financial access and equity in the communities that we're a part of, um, help uh, reach sustainability goals for ourselves and our clients, um, pack more diverse uh, funders and founders. Um, and so we are, uh, our team is between Charlotte and New York City where Tourist is based. Um, and I joined the bank uh, about 18 months ago um, and moved back to the US from London where I had been head of European investments for uh, another uh, corporate venture fund. That's, uh, that's impressive. Thank you, Christina and Emily. And it's also not lost on me that we have two women at the forefront of the fintech industry, an industry that Yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, an industry that, you know, historically has not been tremendously diverse. So I'm really excited to have you both on the stage. Uh, so with that, let's talk a little bit about trends and drivers that you see in fintech M&A this year. Whoever wants to go first. Yeah, I can start. Um, so it's, it's bleak, I think, is the bottom line of it, right? I looked up some data before this panel. And if you look at FT Partners Q1 report, FinTech M&A volume was at $9 billion. While that sounds like a big number, uh, just to put that in context, that is the lowest it has been since Q2 2020. 
so the midst of the pandemic when everyone was kind of freaking out and trying to figure out what was going on. And then if you look again, back historically in time, the, the only other time before that when it was that low was in 2013, right? So we're in a route right now in terms of transactions happening. And there's a couple of things that are, I think, driving that on the back end. Um, first and foremost, from an investor perspective, there's a lot of these companies uh, that are startups that have raised a lot of capital uh, in the glut of 2021 and extending into early 2022, right? And so I think that the number of folks that are still heads down building, trying to make their business work and not yet coming to the realization of like, oh shoot, like this is not gonna work out, we should explore strategic alternatives. Uh, it's just not, those conversations aren't happening yet. And then on the acquirer side, we work with a lot of scaled companies who would be potential acquirers of some of these small, smaller businesses, right? And what they're seeing is for a lot of the smaller type companies, the, the, because the talent market has now loosened up, there's not as much appetite to do the acquire type um, acquisition anymore. And at the same time, when it comes to strategic uh, expansion opportunities or adding new business lines, um, many are still in the process of figuring out, shoring up their own balance sheets and figuring out their own cash burn and conservation and are not yet in the mode of being uh, pre-progressive around M&A. Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add is that, um, you know, for strategic acquirers, you know, they have, a lot of them have strong balance sheets. They could be more acquisitive and out hunting for deals, but their own investors are, are not looking for growth for growth's sake right now. Um, you know, public market investors want to see, you know, even large companies streamlining, looking at their costs, focusing on growth in existing products and markets. Um, and so when your own investors are not saying that that's what they're looking for uh, from you, then you're, you're very unlikely to go out in the market and, and try to find those, those opportunities. You know, we're not in that speculative phase right now of the cycle. We're, we're, you know, we're starting, starting anew. Um, on the private equity side, you know, there's been a ton of, of private equity capital raised over the last several years um, that does need to be put to work, but you know, their cost of capital has gone up on the debt side. Um, and so while there are definitely some attractive opportunities in the market, you know, look at some of the fintechs and even enterprise SaaS companies that have IPO'd over the last five years, a lot of those are trading below their IPO prices. So there, there is an arbitrage there that would be attractive in theory for private equity. Um, but they are really only going to be interested in opportunities where they can bring in that operating playbook and really add value so that when timing is right, they can, you know, bring it back to market. Um, and so there's a lot, a lot of opportunities out there and, and fewer of them ultimately that I think are, are going to be um, looked at at this moment in time. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think there's been a much lower number of, of transactions yeah. uh, this year. And that's also um, sort of caused by the fact that there aren't that many targets, quality targets out there. That said, when there is a, a good quality, a good target out in the market, I've noticed that there's a lot of competition among mm -hmm. both strategics and private equity. And the private equity folks are starting to act like the strategics, right? Um, and, and some of the strategies are trying, and trying to sort of emulate the private equity in terms of offering better terms or rep and warranty insurance, but there's, there's a lot of competition out there for, for good targets. But I would agree with your statement, uh, Emily, that um, in terms of volume, um, it, it's been it's been pretty low. Yes, I think we're sort of in this waiting period too. Like we're I don't know if Redpoint is seeing something similar, but you know we're seeing a lot of atypical rounds right now. Mm -hmm. It's extensions, it's secondaries, it's investment alongside partnership. Yep. You know you're seeing a ton of activity around that, which is you know really sort of 
uh, you know, allowing companies to, co to continue on until you know some sort of clear signal suggests what the you know ultimate end game for, could be for some of them. That's right, and it's also been um, that some of the previous rounds that some of these emerging companies have raised were at a very high valuation, yes. right? And given what's happening in the market, it's hard to match or not to cause a downturn with all that that uh, causes. Um, so, uh, so moving on, you know, what are some of the strategic uh, sort of elements of a, of a fintech investment or target that you look for? And what can a target company do to prepare for an investment or an exit? Um, yeah, I think one thing that's really important to, to think about initially is understanding where your uh, product or technology fits in with the strategic roadmap of potential acquirers. Um, I think especially, again, where we are in this new cycle, you're not going to see a lot of opportunistic M&A getting done on the, on the strategic side. It really needs to fit into the, the broader picture. And so really understanding how you can, you know, sell, sell yourself as a, as a, you know, a, a a long-term partner, whether that ends in a, you know, a transaction or not, I think is really important. Um, and with that, you know, being able to articulate how you, um, you know, sit on top of existing systems, play nicely with existing infrastructure, um, I think is important, particularly in, you know, regulated um, uh, industries like financial services. You know, how are you the, you know, the pipes or the, uh, the plumbing or the bridges um, that can that can quickly come in and you know help to expand to new markets or accelerate capabilities um, in a in an, a, a valuable way, I think is is really key. Um, also, making sure that you identify the right advocates within an institution. Um, you know, I, I think this is true on the investment side as well. But um, you know, I'm often sitting down with entrepreneurs who are saying, "Okay, this is the 12 different people I've talked to. Can you explain to me what exactly they do within the organization? Who has authority to make decisions?" You know, that's all. Um, you know, whether you want to call it politics, organizational structure, that you should try to understand and make sure that you know within you know the potential. Um, you know, acquires you, you may be interested in building relationships with. Who are the people who can advocate for you in the you know the meetings that you're not in, um, and stick with you for the long term? Because again, I think on the, certainly on the strategic investment side and with M and A, you know, people change jobs. You could lose that person that you've spent years building a relationship with. You want to make sure that you have, a, I think, a good collection of people who can advocate for you. Um, and then lastly, I would say, you know, consider alternative structures. I mean, everyone thinks of, you know, I IPO or I have an M&A, but are there other ways to build, you know, long-term strategic value with, with, with some of these partners, um, you know, through a JV or a consortium structure? You know, there's lots of different ways, and lawyers are, are great at, at, at thinking creatively around this stuff, um, hopefully as are our investors. Um, but, but I think, you know, thinking expansively about ways that you can, you can work together to, to build value is, is really helpful. That's great. Yeah. I think from an investor perspective, one sort of pretty damaging mentality that we see in early stage startups a lot is that like M&A or thinking about a potential acquisition tends to be almost taboo, right? In the early days. Like it feels like selling out. Everyone of course is shooting for that, that IPO, that, you know, NASDAQ listing. And so they tend to be heads down, build, 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 sell, 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 compete, 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 and then at some point come to the realization like, oh shoot, this probably isn't going to work out as a standalone business and we're going to need to look at strategic options. But at that point, if you're starting to try and pick up a conversation there or start building relationships with potential acquirers at that point, like it's too late, right? And so something as investors we oftentimes will counsel our companies to do is like, 
have those conversations early on, and they don't have to be M&A focused or, you know, exit focused. Just start to get to know these people and build that trust. Have them bought into your vision, what you're building, your strategic value. And then over time, that becomes a much more natural conversation. And you won't find yourself in the situation of needing to, you know, become a distressed asset. Uh, on the market. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I've worked with a lot of, uh, I typically represent buyers, strategic buyers, and it's really uh, a shame to see a transaction die because a target company is not prepared for that exit, right? You send a due diligence request list and you realize that the company is completely disorganized, right? And it takes months to answer like the, even the most basic questions. So my advice to those who are building a company is yes, to this point, you don't have to focus on an exit or an IPO or a joint venture or other strategic investment, but you gotta have your ducks in a row, right? You've gotta have your documents you know, cleaned up and ready to be diligenced by a potential investor or, or a buyer. Uh, I see a lot of interesting questions coming in. Um, so let's see if we can answer some of them. There's one that um, asks, uh, do you see companies pivoting internationally to IPO outside of the US? Any, any thoughts on that? Um, you know, I've seen in my practice that some companies now are trying to sort of re-domiciliate outside of the United States because, you know, in, depending on what you do in fintech, fintech is a very broad term, right? What do you do? Payments, you do crypto, what do you do? AI, like, there's so much. But there are some areas in the U.S. where the regulatory framework is not clear, and a lot of companies are saying, you know what? We don't want to spend millions of dollars in lawyers trying to talk to the regulators. Let's get outside of the U.S., and when we're bigger, maybe we can come back. Do you see that in your portfolio? I can't say that we have. Uh, I do understand that you know the bar to go public in the U.S. is much higher than it is in some other countries, like Australia, for example. Um, but we haven't yet seen any portfolio companies or companies we've talked to look to you know domicile elsewhere in order to to pursue an exit. Yeah, and generally speaking, that only makes sense if you have a significant book of business right. in an, in another country or geography. Um, but you know, the U.S. is always going to have the most the most liquidity in the market, and 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 so that's you know from a secondary perspective is is what's attractive for, for yeah, investors. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so, do you expect to see increased investment and or consolidation in the AI sector, given the hype around generative AI? Oh gosh, we could do an entire panel agree. on this topic. Um, AI is hot right now. It's probably what m myself and very much of our team is spending the vast majority of our time on these days. Uh, it's hard to say for now, just given the fact that the space seems to change every five minutes or so. Um, right now, there seems to be a lot of early noise in terms of companies starting up or testing out new models and... Uh, I think that over time you will definitely see consolidation happening in the space and there'll be a few winners emerge. Yeah, I mean, this, this reminds me of, you know, six or seven years ago, I suppose, when, um, you know, everyone was hyped on VR and yeah. thought that VR was like the next coming of, of you know, the Messiah. Um, and then we, you know, then we saw, you know, then the metaverse was, you know, the thing that everyone thought was, you know, we were all going to be living in, at, you know, in 2023. Um, so everything goes through these hype cycles. I think that's where we are with, you know, with generative AI right now. Um, I think more broadly, you know, we're starting to see adoption of machine learning and some kinds of AI within regulated industries, but it's going to be quite a while before financial services is really adopting, you know, any of these, um, you know, more, more frontiers technologies in a meaningful way. 
That said, though, I feel like AI has been around in financial services for a long time, right? I think generative AI has just made this much more consumer-facing in the ability to like interact with it. But for years, banks and uh, other folks have been using AI and ML technologies in and around claim servicing or underwriting or other things. It just wasn't as public in the same way that it is now. Totally agree. Um, so we've talked about you know, trends and how to get ready for an exit. Now let's talk about the time when you found a target, you've signed and closed a deal. Let's talk about integration, right? The success Oof. of an M&A transaction is really dependent on integration. So what are some of the best practices and strategies that you would recommend in terms of integration from a commercial, you know, uh, IT, tech, and perhaps customer experience perspectives? I think, you know, even, even before a deal is signed, I think it's really important to understand the values of the two companies that are coming together, and um, that's, you know, that's, that's more than, like, the posters on the wall that talk about everyone values integrity and, you know, things like that. Like, a lot of, a lot of corporate values sound very similar on paper, but the question, I think, comes, like, how, how are those actually implemented and utilized in practice? Like, how are, how are decisions made? What are the leadership styles of the, of the people on, on each side? Do those mesh well together? Um, you need to really spend time and determine if, if, if you have a good value match in practice and not just on paper because I think that can that can break down um, the value of, of those um, those relationships pretty quickly um, post integration um, I also think it's really important to have a dedicated uh, PMI like post merger integration team within the acquirer that is solely focused on making sure that that company is well integrated and um, and has has the appropriate eyes on it to help with the transition um, as opposed to you know maybe someone assigned within the business the acquiring business to, to just sort of look after it as an additional activity um, I, I also think that um, you know, communication is really important, both internal and external. There's like, so much uncertainty on both sides when deals are announced. And so making sure that everyone understands what's going on, what the timeline looks like, um, you know, what are the synergies, you know, really over-communicating, I think, is, is really, really important in those, those scenarios. Um, and... Um, if, to the extent possible, you know, it, it's always great to acquire whole teams um, because that, that gives, you know, anyone coming into the, uh, into the new company uh, an immediate support system as they adjust and adapt to sort of the new, new situation. I think it's a lot harder when you're sort of, you know, cherry picking and, and just bringing in a handful of people at a time. Um, so I think those are all things that we've seen be really yeah. successful. I would totally agree. And I think one of the most important aspects that you mentioned that I kind of want to stress is stop operating in silos. I kind of feel like when it comes to integration, IT only speak to IT. Business only speak to business. Legal only speak to business. We all have to talk to each other, right? Otherwise, integration will not be successful. And, and that needs to happen, to your point, before you even sign a deal, let alone close. Yeah, 100%. I was going to say the exact same thing, except you put it much more eloquently than I ever would have. <laughs> um, I guess my, my point of view is if you're not talking about integration, alignment, making sure everyone is financially and otherwise uh, incentivized to make the merger work before the docs are even signed, like you're probably in trouble. Agreed. Um, so we're almost out of time. We have another couple questions, but um, before we get to the question, we can always answer them uh, after the panel if you guys have time and interest. Uh, let's quickly conclude with some remarks about predictions about the fintech m landscape for the rest of the year. Yeah, so I mean, from an investor perspective, I think what we really saw in the last two, three years, an explosion of the number of fintech companies that were out there, right? I think 
any category that or problem that existed, there tended to be five, 10, sometimes even more players that emerged around the same time to address the issue. That at the end of the day is not sustainable because these folks are burning through VC money uh, to try and compete on price and ultimately very few of them can build sustainable businesses. And so I think that it's inevitable that you're gonna start to see consolidation uh, towards winners in every sort of major category within FinTech. And so I think right now we're in a uniquely low point uh, where everyone's kind of still trying to figure out what's going on and there's, as you mentioned before, this sort of asset pricing dislocation in the market where people don't really know what things are worth. Um, but eventually that's gonna reach a new equilibrium and we're gonna start to see this activity pick up again. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The only thing I would add is, um, you know, I think we're seeing a, a real openness and eagerness on the part of companies to have um, these strategic discussions with potential just partners um, on a, a more consistent and programmatic basis, um, which is great. And, you know, whether that ends in ultimately in, you know, an M&A transaction, who knows, but um, one of the things I, I find really um, exciting in the, the, the fintech space is that there's a lot of collaboration um, amongst um, amongst investors, amongst partners, amongst you know potential acquirers, um, and so th this sort of relationship building that we can do as an ecosystem will, I think, help the, the ultimate winners to find the right place for their you know their opportunities, um, you know, if and when the, the market opens appropriately. I would agree with you both, and just to add my thoughts, you know, I really hope that this year we're going to get more clarity from the U.S. regulators. What I've noticed in my practice is that a lot of businesses are going outside of the U.S. or buying non-U.S. companies. Mm -hmm. And I really don't want um, to happen what happened years ago with the semiconductors industry, where a lot of U.S. companies went overseas, and now we're paying extra to bring them back. Uh, so this is an invite to whoever is in uh, government and, and that works with regulators to, to please give us more clarity. Uh, with that, um, this is the end of our panel. This has been an incredibly energizing discussion. So thanks very much, Emily and Christina. And please join me in thanking them as well.